Welcome to episode 157 of A Pint with Shawnee B. It is a wet July day in Dublin and life just keeps relentlessly piling it on at the moment. The Don is with me today. Hello. Hiya, Pat. Um, lots of things have been happening since you were last with us. Uh, we had a good response to Richard Watson's um, sometimes dire predictions about the future and sometimes positive. We had a new government in Ireland finally. It took them 110 days. Two parties who pretty much have the same economic outlook on life took over four months on the DOS, I reckon, during the pandemic to finally come up with a uh, working government here, which includes the Greens. And in sadder news in Ireland this week, we lost perhaps the greatest honorary Irishman there ever was since the likes of Wolf Tone. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, talking of uh, Charles Stuart Parnell. No, I'm talking about Jack Charlton. Those of you listening from overseas or from America who don't know what soccer is, in the 1990s, the Irish football team got managed uh, by an Englishman for the first time, uh, sort of a gruff north of England lad named Jack Charlton. And he came over, it was a bit more Mick McCarthy there, but uh, he comes over uh, and he works wonders for us in the middle of a major recession back then with unemployment at 16% and government corruption going through the hoop. And he brought magic and wonder and awe and delight and joy. The Don wasn't born then. Or I was, was born. born. I was not a year old, though. So I missed the Italian 90 thing. I feel quite robbed about that. He brought our soccer team to the first championship finals in 1988 in Germany. Then we went to Italia 90, where I was at the game in Rome between Italy and Ireland, which was a memory of my life that's probably one of the greatest ones, uh, with a guy called Jerry McGovern. Hello, Jerry, if you're listening. And 1994, I went over to America. It was my first trip to America. We will come on to talk a little bit about America in a minute, as always. But uh, yeah, Jack Charlton, an ex-footballer, he won the World Cup with England in 1966. He was very gruff, brusque. Uh, told our footballers to play more simply and uh, stupidly than they were, uh, they thought they could. But uh, results came. We used to beat teams severely, one all, um, and we uh, <laughs> got to the got to the quarterfinal of the World Cup. No mean feat. And there was a huge outpouring here in Ireland over the last few days. Sure. Look, the thing of it is, right? Most people, I'd say, well, certainly most women. I know there's women who are into football, but I'm always of wary of women who are into football. I don't, be, I don't believe them. <laughs> I know some who actually genuinely are, and then some of them are just not like other girls. Yeah. But yeah, no, so like a lot of people wouldn't remember the stats and the ins and the outs, but the long and short is that we were shit at football. And we were kind of, aside from the Eurovision, had we anything else really going yeah. for us? And that was taken from us eventually. And everyone was broke. Yeah, Jack Charlton took over from Johnny Logan. We were winning the Eurovision yeah. Song Contest. That was about as good so as I like, could get on the that's world why stage. That's why it's important to people, even if you don't give a shit about football. It was a big thing. And, like, I mean, I don't obviously remember it. But, you, you grow, like, I grew up it being constantly referenced as this just glorious time. And so 30 years now, I do feel it's an awful shame I can't share in that nostalgia. But I'm kind of hoping for our very own new... <laughs> Italian 1990, which would be Prince Andrew 2020. <laughs> and I can't, I, I'm I am just praying we get to watch a televised trial. And the entire, can you imagine the entire country of Ireland, Italian 90 would be, fuck that, this is bigger. We're watching Prince Andrew on trial. Every pub in the land would be packed. It'd be great. So before the Don segues into what she's talking about there, the, the, the end of 30 years is interesting because you look back on 
when I was around and experiencing that with my friends, we were all in our early 20s and it was it was at the time like nothing before and it is it has not been replicated. We've never had anything like it since. No. Um, and so when it comes to things like the pandemic or what, what we're going to talk about next, it's just this kind of this idea that you're living through a time in life which is, yes, difficult and yes, hard and yes, it's got fear and it's got a lot of worrying aspects to it, but it is the part of the 21st century so far, what we're living through right now, is what people are going to be talking about for the rest of the century. It's going to be like the way the Spanish flu was talked about or world wars. Oh my God, yeah. So you know when your, your granny says, well, I remember during the war. During the war? We, we couldn't get nylons, you see. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple of years time, like maybe my kids will have kids and I'll be like, I'm I remember hard to during get the... nylons at the moment. Are you find it hard? <laughs> well, that's why you're wearing my sockies over yeah. your socky sock things. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a, it's just... We live in interesting times, and not least where the Don was going with her segue there, which was very well segued, by the way. I just wanted to finish up on you Jack Charles. You had to cock it up, don't you? I just wanted to finish up on Jack Charles and give him his dues and say, fair enough, and uh, uh, you will be missed. Now, the, uh, the Don's version is basically the news as well that Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. So any of you following the Jeffrey Epstein... Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein... Uh, paedophilia coaching little girls a very good um, Netflix documentary on about it she was his kind of lover and psychic who used to kind of procure the girls and she went kind of well, missing yeah no well, that's the thing I you was, take it over um, here Don. I think like my everybody's kind of heard of Jeffrey Epstein at this stage and kind of vaguely knows the story and if you're not huge you know, again that whatever it's trendy I can't remember what it's called but it's trendy on Netflix everyone's watching it's very good so Glenn Maxwell is a very wealthy person from England and she's been living in America for donkey's years and they got together. So a lot of the coverage is that she procured young girls for him, which she did. She'd organise it all, so essentially that she was the madam of these girls who were being trafficked. But what bothers me about that, and it's absolutely true, and it's very much, it gives you a picture, but she was also not only complicit, not only did she allow it, and she took part in it. So she is a paedophile. She's not just the person beside the paedophile who is obviously culpable for her part in it no she's culpable for her paedophile part in it mm. i don't know if it's uh, political or it's gendered but i just noticed that piece is being left out all the time she did it too in it up to her neck her father was robert maxwell one of the big media moguls of britain who also i think he was from the czech republic he died mysteriously falling off a boat probably in air quotes um and then your point about prince andrew you like you don't like prince andrew yeah no not a fan um, <laughs> shockingly I'm not a royalist I find the idea of monarchy absolutely appalling anyway aside from the fact that I'm Irish and obviously mm-mm. but the idea that you could be born so special your bloodline is so special that you're above the rest of the people I'm like that's very close to when you start getting into bloodlines and DNA mm. you get into racism all nasty things come from the idea of special blood as I find it appalling anyway I don't like them but he in particular obviously because of what he has done I have a problem with but also, if you cast your mind back to that wonderful interview, yeah. was it before Christmas? A car so, crash interview, Prince Andrew. Yeah, so it was all coming out and Jeffrey Epstein had <coughs> killed himself. And uh, so he had to kind of face the music and say something. Now, he had ages to prepare for this. She was invited into the palace and he sat there. And like, bear in mind, he has had access to all of the media training his entire fucking life. And 
he sits down, this stupid fucker sits down. <laughs> and this was the time when he said, uh, he, well, it, it's not possible because she was saying I was sweating in a nightclub. I'm sure I, I, have a, I have a condition that I can't sweat since the war. And I'd say he's fucking sweating bullets now. Um, Bet he swallows. <laughs> but like, it was just, it was so appalling. It was a car crash. And the thing is, the only thing that was worse than his stupidity was his unbelievable arrogance. He genuinely thought he was so clever. He was smarter than the woman interviewing him, smarter than everybody. And he just hung himself. And like, you were kind of watching it going, stop, but he's dead, stop. And two days later, the Queen of England with a shepherd's crozier hooked him off the stage and he hasn't been seen since. Yeah, didn't she cancel his birthday party? (laughs) You know you're in trouble when your ma says, that's it, there's no party this year. I said I'd do it and I'm not doing it. There's no party now. I woke up in a sort of, unlike Prince Andrew, a sort of a cold sweat when I heard that Kanye West was thinking of running as president of America. And I went, oh my God, what if Donald Trump flicks Mike Pence and says, my running mate is going to be Kanye? Jesus. And as they say, you should never do in the movie Tropic Thunder, which we watched recently, never go full retard. America is on the verge of going full retard. With I'm allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say with that. All apologies to people who are. This is anyway. Give me my shovel there, will you? Can I get you JCB? See, I'm allowed to say that. I don't say that, but we I'm allowed to say to, that. We'll talk about that because we're not allowed to say that. Okay, but we're well, also actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had we've had major developments. Well, on that front, on the thought police and that. Now, I personally don't. I'm not going to say. I don't say the word. I don't say retard. Right. Now, the reason I've done that is it's a big part of the argument where you know you're not allowed to say the words you're not allowed to say, even if it's to discuss the fact that it's why it's hurtful to say it. And, you know, so we're all like grown adults spelling words out and you're going, oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, like if we're having an adult discussion, a socially conscious discussion, we can't say the bad words that we're not supposed to have said. It's just fucking ridiculous. Anyway, I I would consider myself quite left leaning. I am not far left. And I think that I'm getting I'm getting more and more fucking centre every day. Because I, I personally do believe it has become absolutely Orwellian, the left. So there was a letter um, for Harper's Bazaar and it is signed by, I think, 152 intellectuals. And it's about the restriction of debate. And um, some of the people who've signed it are Margaret Atwood, Noam Chomsky, Simon Rushdie, uh, Gloria Steinem, but also J.K. Rowling. It's talking about... Censorship used to be a thing of the right. The thought policing used to be a thing of the right. You know, if you read 1984, decades ago, you would assume it's... And it is because it was written in 1948. It is flavoured from those times. But, you know, now it's kind of coming to fruition The on the other side. There is a narrative. This is what we're allowed to say, and we don't say anything else aside from that. Now, I personally, I don't like when I hear myself say about freedom of speech because I associate it with the kind of people I really don't like. I have lefty progressive values. If you stand in town square and shout unpleasant things, well, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. I do think so. I think freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence. And I think it's massively influenced by the internet. But I think at this point, there's a difference between people getting a bit of stick. You said this thing, people think you're an arsehole now. Grand. But it, it has gotten to the point where people are hounded. And it's, it, I see it being painted amongst a lot of people who I'm friends with and I have similar views to it's being painted with, oh, they're, they're giving out that people are being mean to them. But no, there's there's no debate anymore. Like the, People are so afraid of not being PC that it's, it's quite worrying because it's thought police. That being said, of all of the examples that are coming up of things that you can't say anymore, 
I personally wouldn't like a person who's saying them. I think you're a bit of a dick if you say it. You know, for most most things, I find myself... Well, I, mean, I was a dick there for saying, you know, never go full retard. That's from a movie called Tropic Thunder. It's a quote from a movie which is 11 years old. Also in that movie, Robert Downey Jr., I think he may have even got an Oscar nomination for this, hmm. appeared in blackface playing a black guy, but playing it with all the kind of the black guy in the army, right? Yeah. Again, problematic now. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're doing this the, the day after the Washington Redskins have announced they're no longer going to be called the Washington Redskins. Apparently, I mean, I... I I find that bizarre, but okay. If everyone's that upset about it, let's change the names. Apparently it's okay for the Cleveland Indians because that's less damaging or something than Redskins. I think the Redskins are going to call themselves the Red Tails, which would be named after the fighter planes in World War II that were populated by black fighter pilots that used to paint the tail red. So they're covering off a few bases that is, there. That is a good, they, <laughs> they a good can, flex there, I'd say. Like, and they can use the color scheme. Um, the Utah team are called the Utes, named after an American, uh, and, and there's a the Seminoles. They're okay because the clubs have done it with their permission, and they get a, mm. they get paid royalties. And you know the, the Robert Downey Jr. thing. You go okay, it's a bit like you know this can a, a non-trans actor play a trans person in a film? The trans population go up yeah. in arms over that. Can in a comedy film a recognized white actor? dress and play a black part or is he taking a role from a black person no he's not because the joke is that is that really insensitive I, like we're this is the quagmire we're in what's yeah. right for one person is not right for another where's the line and who draws it who well, decides exactly. it I mean there's lots of stuff that I kind of go there, there are some things that I kind of go oh, you're a dick if you say that <laughs> like yeah. you're entitled to be a dick there are some things that for instance like you saying retard now I well I was quoting I, from the film no I know but like you know I choose not to say it because I think, oh, maybe, maybe not. I, I kind of, it was, I probably would have been in my lexicon and I kind of actively went, there's other words, maybe get out of that habit. It's not a great one. But I, I don't drop my shopping if someone says it. So basically what you're saying is that there's all these writers now have come together to... Yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly who was behind it, but I know who signed on to it. So they applaud the the needed reckoning on systemic racism, but argued that it has intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments, which they claim are stifling free speech in favour of ideological conformity. Um, so that would be, for me, the key phrase, the ideal, ideological conformity is worrying to me. Um, and it, it quotes the letter of, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. While we've come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues into a blinding moral certainty. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but that's that's kind of the, you, you get the gist. Yeah. And it came out on the headline of J.K. Rowling has uh, signed this. And of course, and I, I think I think she's a weapon, So, but, but, but of course... Bad, by the way. Of course, straight away when her name is attached to something, which it is when you see uh, an article coming up on, on a news feed and it's her face and her in the headline, you've automatically decided, oh, here we go. Your one is at it again. And then you read this, this letter. And so it's automatically got her stamp on it because it's being portrayed in that way. And so I saw people losing their shit on some of my uh, kind of lefty, particularly feminist groups that I'd be on. And I went, all right, what's this? Then they kind of got to naming out one or two Irish authors that were on it, and I'm so disappointed I liked him. And I thought, I just, I literally rolled my eyes so far back in my head because it's meta. Like, they've mm. lit- the letter is basically 
giving out about cancel, cancel culture is being talked about in the letter. And they respond to this by saying, oh, it's such a pity because I liked him, meaning he's cancelled now because he signed the yeah. letter. So I found, and they just didn't get the irony there. I'm watching this unfold. And then I copped that Margaret Atwood had signed it. Now, Margaret Atwood, if anyone's not aware, uh, wrote uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And she is arguably one of the best respected writers in the world. I would posit that she could probably fill a bigger arena than any other author in the world, should she choose to. That would be my take. Massively because The Handmaid's Tale was made into a TV programme shortly after uh, Trump came into office, so that was perfect timing. And her the robes from Handmaid's Tale have been used for a lot of protests and stuff like that. So she's literally the feminist hero. She hasn't put a step wrong at any point, but she has signed this letter. So once I copped it, and people weren't copying her name straight away, and once I copped it, I kind of sat and waited to see how many donuts people would do to twist back because no one's going to take on Margaret Atwood. Like, and I, I'm watching for the past week. I can't, I can't see anybody lashing into her. No. So, so they're like J.K. Rowling, who I think is horrible, but they're ripping into her and they're cancelling anybody else whose name is on it. They're all getting cancelled, but nobody has cancelled. Everyone's just ignoring the glaring Margaret Atwood in there because nobody's going to attempt to start dismantling her, which I find interesting. Yeah, so we're in a situation where, first of all, everyone has different points of view on different things. Yeah. I don't think there is natural here is what it means to be on the left yes you have to be in this way about the traveling community you have to be this way about women you have to be this mm. way about trans you have to be this way about islam you yeah know? no everyone's a person i've got a major problem with islam not all muslims i don't want anyone damaging or beating up muslims but i also want yeah. people to be brought to book for cutting the clits out of girls and for cutting hands off people and for not letting women drive and for all yeah. that shit and all the women go, well, women want to do that. They want That's why they're in the religion. Bollocks. But I'm not sure that's true. And uh, they, no, know, I don't give a shit. I have a huge issue. I hate all religion. We've discussed this before. Yeah. I was just using that as, a, as another yeah. example. So and, like, but I see what you mean. Because do I, I fancy I, a, a, tr- a tranny if she's got a moustache and, and a hairy chest? Uh, probably not. Oh, well, then am I transphobic? No, I'm not. Fuck off. You look, you look like Ron yeah. Jeremy. Sorry. We, so, like, I mean, my, on the trans thing, I find myself falling short of the golden mark um, and I tend to shut up about it because I actually just don't need the hassle so I don't tend to get involved but my take is this I keep trying to educate myself on it there's actually another documentary trending as well on Netflix couldn't tell you what it's called now but it's I watched it it was very interesting uh, I also found it very interesting that they only used trans people who were extremely beautiful extremely glamorous and passing so no people that were probably had a lot of money and you can't you really wouldn't know to look at them until they start talking about their experience that they're trans so i found that interesting that they decided to go that way because it's an absolute choice they didn't choose anybody who wasn't necessarily great at passing therefore the kind of person who's likely to be treated like a man in a dress and um, they really avoided that one and i found it kind of disingenuous that they didn't talk about that um i personally would be very interested in trans rights it'd be very important to me that we're supporting trans people. We're making sure that they're safer. I think it's been a very difficult life for someone who's trans and I'd, I'm, I'm happy that things are changing. However, you know, if I was, if I was single, if I was on Tinder and if I met somebody on Tinder and I was like, I like him and but absolutely no idea. And he was passing and I thought it was gorgeous and I was chatting away to him for two weeks and then I met him. And then he, when I meet him, he mentions that he's trans. Even if I had no idea. And if he's post-op fully male for me, I'm afraid I couldn't go there. That's what That's, we call a deal breaker. So, yeah, if it mattered to penis, and there was literally no difference except the fact that I knew he used to be a woman. I'd have no problem with him, but I don't, I'm not sexually attracted to him. That's my business, and 
that would make me transphobic, apparently. But I would say we have a problem here when feminism is saying that because to me, one very core fundamental part of feminism is that nobody is entitled to your body. Nobody is entitled to your sexual attraction. You don't go around treating anybody differently because they're male, female, trans, whatever. But your your sexuality and your body is entirely your business. You don't, you're allowed to discriminate. You don't go announcing it to the world. I think it's rude to say I'd never date a trans person. It's rude to say I'd never date a black person, a white person, a Hispanic person. But you are actually entitled to your own personal preferences. It's your business. And I get very uncomfortable with the idea that people who are spending their life dealing with Me Too, rape culture, misogyny, would then... And it's not everybody that holds that opinion, but I have actually been, and I remember you making this point two years ago, and I disagreed with you, and I'm now seeing it rise, the idea that if you wouldn't date a trans person, therefore you're transphobic. And I kind of go, when we start policing what people are allowed to be interested in, obviously consenting adults we're talking about, but when we start policing not only what people, what people are allowed to be interested in, that gets very close to homophobia and things like that, that you're not, but now we're actually enforcing what you have to be interested in. That to me is abhorrent, and I just find it, yeah. I find it so weird that the same people who are so strong on rape culture, on on misogyny, that there's almost a push that that your sexual you have to be, or otherwise you're a bigot if you're not interested in all genders. I find that really disturbing. Mm. Look, there's no doubt in my mind that if you go all the way back to the binary nature of biology, of man and woman, there is a third dimension to that. Mm which is not everybody behaves or wants to or feels like behaving like a man or a woman. And I mean that in terms of their sexual preference. I mean that in terms of their own mm. sexuality. I mean that in terms of they maybe feel they're born in a different body. But the problem we're having is that we've splintered that third, let's call it the third sex or third yeah. well, biological does, it, sex. Well, it and does exist it, is it in lots of cultures. But it, that would to sex. me include gay people, queer people, trans people, furries, you know, people who just don't want to identify as the traditional man, woman, get married, do all that crap. I mean, in many ways, I'm like that. I don't, I don't believe in families and raising children and 30 years of your life go by and you die. OK, in many ways, that could be very insensitive to the general society approach things. But the problem is that this other sect is now eating itself. It's eating its own tail because the people within the well, don't you say to me I'm queer, I'm actually furry or whatever. And there's this huge aggro going on and everyone's sort of sitting back going okay can you just like yeah i can't see it finishing i can't see a finish i can't see i don't even know what whether people protesting know what a finish line looks like yeah. you know um, um I, i've been for the last while i've been thinking to myself where are all the grown-ups and um, what i mean by that is um it's become almost an insult to say and i actually saw this insult said it's not become almost an insult i saw this written on social media Oh, yay, another white, an old white liberal says things. Um, <laughs> it's like, so what used to be, remember, a, cis, a, a straight white ma- man, wonderful, we're dying to hear your opinion. Mm. It has now become an old white liberal. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I might be an old white, white liberal because that's what I've been looking for. What I meant was I see these arguments being made, but frequently they're made by people who are on the right. And therefore, like you tell a right wing person, you're homophobic, you're, they go, yeah. And I believe in but so there's no there's no insulting them because you're going to yeah and but when people are left leaning and progressive liberals and they don't want to be associated with bigotry so they stay quiet and I've been sitting there kind of going where are all the Gen X maybe a bit older where are all the people aged forty five to sixty who are college educated 
liberal left-leaning where are they all? Because they well, sure I, as I, shit I think don't all I, mean, I think a lot of them are hiding. I mean, I was... They're all hiding. Oh, they I, are. I have told you, and you know this, last year I tried to do something about it, but I've had difficulty getting people on to talk about this thing. People in the middle of, of a podcast will say, I don't want to talk about that because they're just afraid yeah. of what will happen. You do have situations like Black Lives Matter and you do have situations like tearing down statues. No, not of Jesus or George Washington, but statues of slave owners that were erected in the southern states of America in the yeah. early part of the last century at a time when slavery had been abolished to celebrate their slave ownership, you do have a very, very valid, in mm. the same way that it was valid in the fucking 60s, it's still valid today. Black lives matter, all lives matter. All lives matter, yeah, but black lives are the ones that are getting it up yeah. to date at the moment. I mean, I mean, Sam Harris had a piece, you know, like, well, you know, most of the people who get killed by cops are white people. Oh, I was in America for eight years, okay? I didn't see the videos of white guys getting killed for no reason by mm. cops, okay? For just parking outside of McDonald's or getting out and running and just getting clearly no threat or getting kneeled on. Presumably the same number of mobile phones have been around to video these terrible atrocities of justice against white people. I haven't yeah. seen one. I can't well, think of one. I mean, put it this way. You know, if I was to say, oh, you know, like I, my kids are nine and seven. Oh, I have to have the chat. If I were to say that in white company, even in America, they would assume you're talking about the birds and the bees, you know, sex, all that kind of thing. If you say that in a black family, the chat, that's not what they mean. Mm, yeah, yeah. They mean the chat that they have with their children, what you do when a cop no, goes, how to, not, how to not get shot mm. while being black. Yeah. And, and that's, so, that just so, doesn't happen So that to families. me would be a kind of a, you know, a thing that's happened. And it's been very much driven by the pandemic because there were a lot of people who were able to go out in the streets. And this is a t- thing that fucking needs to get sorted out yeah. in America. And it is mainly an American issue. I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it's as big an issue in, in, for example, London. We've been to, like, one of the things we noticed when we were in London last November, I was pointing out on the train, like, oh, it's just this, this, it's colourless in many regards. Now, having said that, we have a major football issue with racism and there's still football fans who love to chant very abusive things at, at England's black players, most of whom, who would be in the majority and certainly they're the best footballers in England. But so... We have this issue of racism that still won't go away, that needs to be tackled. Now, what does that look like? Well, I reckon you could paint a parameter of what racism fixed looks like. I don't think you could paint a parameter for what trans rights look like properly. That would not cause problems with excluding queer or furries or whatever other outliers there are. People who Mm. believe that if, well, if the trans get it, then we should get it. And before you know it, it's like, I want rights for someone called Sean. I think you're well, being mean to So me. I feel very strongly that everybody is entitled. There are certain rights that I think everybody is yeah. entitled to. And I think there are certain groups who are not getting all of those rights. And I think it's very easy to say, well, you know, women are allowed to vote, so that's the problem. Well, there's an awful lot of shit that happens to women. And likewise, people of colour, trans people. So I feel very strongly about equality. I feel very strongly about standing up for people who are being oppressed. I feel very strongly everyone should get their rights. I just don't believe that other people's feelings fall into the category of your rights. You're not entitled to somebody else's feelings. Mm. And that is the piece that, in regards to the trans issue, I would say it with everything. If I'm a gay person, you're allowed to be homophobic. What you're not allowed to do is make my life shitty because of how you feel about it. But I'm not entitled to have you be cool about the fact that I'm gay. I'm, I'm entitled to have you put that aside and not have that affect my life. And I think that's the piece that I consistently... I'm not seeing, because that, that bit is piss simple to me. You know, it's go, it's where do you draw the line? Everyone's different. Yeah, my line would be different to yours. But for me, it's a case of 
you don't have to like who I am. You don't have to like my choices, whether you consider them choices, whether I consider them who I am. You don't have to like that. What you have to do is shut the fuck up and let me get on with my life. You have to not discriminate against me, not turn me away from a shop. It's not okay for me to be fired from a job. All of those things. And I know it's more complicated than that. But there are bigger things. But there are issues of if people have a particularly negative attitude to gay people or to trans people, well, then the likelihood of them experiencing violence in the streets is higher. I do get that. But I think there is a bottom line issue here that people have to kind of put on their big girl knickers and realise absolutely we fight for everybody's rights. But grow up, you're not entitled to help people think. If you don't like gay people, if you had a real fucking, if you're a really homophobic deep down inside, I think you're a prick. Like, I wouldn't want to be with you. However, however, as long as you're not making anybody else's life difficult because of that, you're entitled to your dickhead opinions. So then there's a another cohort of people in the human species who are called bullies. Hmm. Bullies apply themselves across race, creed and culture. Yeah. And, and political and uh, political government beliefs. and everything. What I think needs to happen is that we need to imagine a world where we just do not allow for bullies. And bullies online with kids in school, bullying trans people, bullying black people, bullying women, mm. bullying work colleagues, bullying whatever. That's the issue. There are a mm. bunch of people who are prepared to dress up in white robes and flaming torches and go after people and bully them or kill them or damage yeah. them or harm them. There's bullies within Islam. There's guys with beards going around with sticks beating girls because they're wearing shirts with skirts that are too short or whatever. Mm. Those bullies, and they're bullies who are going around chopping people's heads off for Islam. Yeah. Those people need to be eradicated out of our society. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Irrespective of where... Because it, if you're a kind person, you don't want to upset... The such a thing as mind your own fucking business and leave people alone. Take the fighting Irish thing, which is Notre Dame's symbol. That's now coming on the table. Irish mm. Americans going, oh, we should take down the United the fighting Irish thing. That's very. Yeah, but the unique. Irish Americans are the worst for it. Well, no, but but like that, so, what the, what they're basically saying is that's really offensive to Irish people. Now, I don't find that offensive. That it's a leprechaun with a pint of Guinness in his hand and a, a, a shillelagh about to beat the shit out of someone. I mean, because I, I get the fact that it's kind of exaggerated kind of comedy and it's fine. And it doesn't suppress me. If we're doing thought police and hate speech and things you're not allowed to say, I would absolutely back a piece of legislation that says anybody born or married in America is not Irish. And if you say that you're Irish, you, <laughs> I, I would absolutely back that. That's the only thought police that I'd back because yeah. I fucking hate it. They can keep their lucky charms, they're fighting Irish. I don't care. You're not Irish. But the, but the fighting Irish is basically, you know, being thought policed by people like that because they feel that people like us would be offended or offended by. And I don't know anyone who'd be offended by that. Okay? I don't. I actually don't think so. I think what I'm seeing because I've 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 made it. A little oh, you bit think a people would be, well, no, no, be offended? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, I've made a bit of a hobby, as you know, for the past month or two. I've gotten really into upsetting racist Irish Americans on the internet. It's actually a wonderful hobby. Wonderful hobby. All the rage with the millennials and Gen Zs now. It's great. So what we do is we join all these proud Irish descendant type groups, and we find a way to work in and to just troll the shit out of them because. Some of them are great crack and they're fine. But generally the ones that are least Irish, they're great, 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 granddaddy kind of shite, tend to be violently racist. They try and use, because the Irish slave myth, it's chatteled. Slavery is not the same as indentured servitude, by the way. But so all of the Irish, the Irish, we get used by fucking hillbilly, Trump-supporting, finger-licking, bugger-picking yanks 
use us mm. and it's irritating enough for us when they start doing their plastic patty routine but the reason we're getting really pissy about it at the moment is they are using us for their racist ends and then we go oh no 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 because Ireland is not without racism I don't for a minute say that but we are a much more progressive nation in general and that may not have always been the case and they want to drag us back to the quiet man and the catholic conservative and we're going uh no uh, because our friends are black and they have dublin accents so piss off my eight years in america since before the podcast the worst racist people most racist people that i encountered were in boston and and probably atlanta and georgia in general so you you have this and by the way uh hannity bill o'reilly kellyanne conway the, the, the hard-talking, backstreet boys of Donald Trump's administration are Irish-Americans. Yeah, I mean, like, look, I'm sure there's the sort of people who, They're the sort of people who go, I haven't a racist bone in my body, right? Yeah. Who says that? There are some Irish-Americans who I've met, actually, particularly recently, who are really cool. And we invite them into our splinter groups of actually people who are just from Ireland and taking the piss and sharing screenshots. They're really cool. They want to learn about their roots anti-colonial and it's great wonderful we love them but i can imagine if i was if i were a progressive person who kind of wanted the world to be a bit better and was a bit like i don't really want to hate the gays and i'd rather for a bit less racist that'd be great but you happen to be irish american you're surrounded by irish americans and you kind of go oh it'd be awful so they're finding great refuge with us but overall you're like you've named a load of people there with irish names that are irish american and they're all the absolute antithesis of modern Ireland and what our mm. values are I mean we've had some major votes in the past couple of years so we've, we've kind of nailed our clothes to the mast we are two thirds progressive well there's a you know if you go all the way back Norade was the big American supplier of arms to the IRA during the 70s and 80s there's this green tinted spectacled view of Ireland by mm. an awful lot of America. of course not hashtag not all Irish American friends you can relax those of you that are cool yeah so I mean I think the, I think the point we're, we're getting to is this I don't think it's sustainable to keep fragmenting and fracturing and jumping on people just because you disagree with their views on. I mean, I think issue it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one because, as you say, that I go, well, you know, we're going to have to learn to roll with the fact that I think the big issue is that the the big issue, um, the town square is now the internet, mm-hmm. and that changes things massively. You've got a certain amount of anonymity sometimes. You don't have to look at someone's face when you're saying something. It's a, uh, actually Richard you're Watson anonymous. last time yeah. uh, was mentioning in a different sense, but that when you're in a small village, you might not stick the head out the car. I yeah. do anyway, because yeah. I have a huge issue with road rage. You're not living in a small village. No, but I mean, like, you, you might think twice as against in a big city where no one knows you. You do kind of have a, you have a bit more manners if you're in a small town and you have to live with these people. You might be disinclined to go mouthing out to you unless you really feel strongly. And there's no harm with that. So now that we have the internet, that's not the case. And I understand the part that we're going to have to get used to that. And I do think if you say things that are unpleasant, but now what's unpleasant? But if you say things that are unpleasant to a large group of people, you have to take it on the chin and go, yeah, people are going to be mean to you. Get over it. Get a grip. However, it's where is the line between being mean to you? Because I, I do, I think, I, I think the point being, if some asshole like Jordan Peterson wants to go over, okay, well, like, don't ban him from UCD. Get your big girl knickers on, get all the girlos, plan how you're going to take them down and sit there in the front row scowling at the prick 
and take them down because you are the elite. That's what the universities, I know everyone's going to university now, but like the universities were where the elites go. And this boo-hoo whinging, oh, we can't have them, they're cancelled. It's the literally de-platform cancel. I'm like, give them hell. Don't be such a snowflake. Give them hell. So there's, and, and I think you're right, but there is a one-on-one decision as one of my ex-bosses said, I only open my mouth to change feet. But, you know, I'm careful. I mean, if it's somebody who I know, suppose, you know, I, I, I've said this before, like if someone calls me a Mick or a Paddy and he's English, right? Hmm. But he's a mate of mine, okay? I go, Grant, I won't get all fucking... But I could equally Context. beat the shit out of someone for call, uh, some English bloke for calling me a Mick or a Paddy, right? Because it's insulting them. You watch African-Americans talking to each other. And they're taking the piss and having a laugh because that's what part of life is about. And we, yeah. we had, you know, you, you picked Cheryl Sharp out. She's absolutely adamant that we that they can't be doing that. Okay, that they cannot be using the N word amongst themselves in a playful manner. Okay, mm. because it's still so toxic, and the 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 weight of the word, she would prefer to see it obliterated, which I kind of understand too. Yeah, but I I kind of go if someone's having a laugh with me. Ergo, you're in a cinema or you're in a, a theater mm. watching a comedian. You have to be remove your prickles and say, okay, I may not like that, but like I'm not going. I'm going to give you an example that's coming up in my head. When I was in my teens, now I went to a very rough school, so just bear that in mind, right? So you know the way um, lots of young ones would say would say to a friend, "Hey, bitch." Now we weren't like that. It was like, "All right, cunt," yeah. but like it was. We did it a lot of the time just to annoy the teachers because they used to because they they basically treated everybody in the school like we're all dragged out of a hedge and none of our parents ever had an education and why would you want to go to college you know you can work in a shop you might be able to be a hairdresser that so we were reminded all the time what poverty we were by teachers who lived a mile up the road in the next parish over notions and like they read out and bury books to kids for a living I don't know why they thought they were but they really looked down on us as the dregs of society there was a certain element of the school wasn't as rough as it led on. But there was an, we absolutely tried to play up how ghetto we were just to annoy them. And we literally would scream from one end of the, of the yeah. school to the other to our best friends. The teacher would look and go, they're literally laughing, going, fuck you, cunt. We used to do that all the time. Now, if we then went to the shop and someone was like, at the, at the, at the checkout, somebody we don't know on the till goes, you're right, cunt. We'd be like, excuse me, have you actually just called me a cunt? Mm. So there is context. So if you're English friends, like English people really shouldn't be using the Mick and Patty thing. But if you know, if somebody knows you well because you are a messer and they have a, a long-standing joke yeah. with you, grant. But if you're if you're in England and you get a pint of pub and you go sit down and someone starts calling you Mick and Patty barman and you don't know him, you haven't had any banter with them, sorry, what prick? That is not acceptable. So there's context. You so so my, my, my own take on the, on the America my time there and here's why it can spark to the surface so quickly is that if you get to a situation and this is a great example where what the black movement have had got to through the 60s and 70s was blacks are allowed to go into restaurants blacks mm. are allowed to go on buses and sit, you know. but what doesn't get removed is the cancer of racism all yeah. that happens is it gets shut down in people so people don't say it yeah they think it boston totally like this atlanta totally like this dallas and, and texas a little bit more wearing it on the sleeve, which is worse, but at least you know where they're coming from. Whereas in a, in a lot of the, the East Coast, it is hidden racism. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It is like, I would never, ever use the N-word. I would never slag somebody 
But deep down, but I, will point I, will out how vote, many I would always vote for the person yeah. who's not going to give them a chance, well, who's not going to let the world go get to a sort of a place of... That's the person yeah. who is most dangerous. And so, I mean, like... Massive. You have the people who say absolutely racism is wrong. I would never say anything racist. I haven't got a racist bone in my body. In fact, I have black friends. What I'm saying is I can't help but notice the amount of crime in the ghettos. And you know what? If they stop shooting each other and they stop committing crime, then maybe they... Because this is a great country and I worked my way up from the bootstraps. Okay, literally, just say you're a fucking racist. Because we all know, like... They were slaves. All of their descendants were slaves. And it's not that long ago. It's a living memory where you couldn't go here, you couldn't go there. So you think that after a couple of decades of stepping on an entire race of people where they are property, they are like dogs, you suddenly go, oh, well, you've had years now. And actually, you're just not smart enough. You're not respectable enough. We don't carry on like that. What's wrong with you? You know why you're so many black people in prison? Not because we're convicting you, because you're doing crimes. You go, listen. And, and that would apply to the travellers as well. You go, right, okay, I realise there might be a higher rate of crime. I realise there might be problems there. I also realise... I always re- I also realise one in four and the average age, like, they're, they're not living to 50. You can sit there and go, well, they do this wrong, they do that wrong. You will guess what? When you oppress a people and all of the indigenous cultures around the world, like the Aboriginals in Australia, in Canada, that's what fucking happens. When you do that, you cock it up, it's going to take a few generations to fix the deep wounds that were there. You, what you have to do is get your fucking foot off their neck for a bit and you don't get to go, well, look, they just do this and they just do that. But I, I find with racism, unless people are like boldly wearing another sleeve and saying the N-word and all that, but generally you'll have an awful lot of people, which I'd say applies here as well, although I really don't think it's as racist in America. But when people have felt entitled to own black people, <laughs> it's fine to have them be boy and they're subservient and a, and a man of 60 it, it's okay to talk to him like he's a 10 year old being your caddy when you're in a restaurant and, and he's the bus boy even though you're 25 like that's not going to go away overnight and I do think in that scenario there had to be rules where it's just a case of you know what think it don't say it you can't say that anymore mm. good people have to be afraid to say it unfortunately so it doesn't fix the, the problem out of the situation That's yeah the point I'm so the, the problem is i get what you're saying that it's nearly worse when they don't say it and they're thinking of, mm. and i've given examples of what i think actually happens problem is there are times when it's so serious where you have to go you know what you can't fucking say it anymore don't say it think it is exactly why the ku klux klan wore masks yeah right that was the doctor that was the policeman that was the vicar yeah getting dressed up at night to protest as a mass movement against black people. Yeah, I think we all have this image, certainly from watching it on TV. Right years. We all have this image that it's all going to be these skinhead lads with swastika tattoos no. and, you know, the white gangs and prisons under those robes. Well, why the fuck would they wear the robes then? <laughs> like, well, they're the ones who don't wear the robes. Exactly. They don't need it. They <laughs> yeah. have it on their skin. So the people in the robes, like, anyway, we all have this picture that that's what they're. Coming full circle, maybe the best unification for racism in America is a Kanye West, Donald Trump ticket. Discuss. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> sweet Jesus. So anyway, we will see what happens on the whole Trump-Kanye-Biden situation. Um, as ever, the Don is here with number nine in her top 20 countdown. As ever, the Don has three uh, clues for me to see if I can remember the guest that she has picked as number nine. Off you go. I do, I do. One, people need to trust people in business and in life. Um, oh, Kieran? Yeah, Yay! well done. <laughs> on tick. 
On tick. That was one of my things. That's one of the reasons I... That's not the reason I chose. Well, I, I mean, good good call. Kieran McGowan is uh, one of my favourite people. He's uh, actually a cousin of mine, but he was very influential in the foundation of the state of Ireland in the last 40 years as it emerged from uh, a swamp, a farming swamp, and into something a bit more shiny and metallic. He was involved in the, at the IDA Industrial Development Board bringing overseas investment into the country. He was brought up the son of a shopkeeper. He was brought up during the time of TB, which he talks about mm. in the podcast. He's a very kind man and a very, a very fitting guest, given the conversation we've yeah. just had over the last half an hour or so. So he was on my... I've, I've kind of went to the top 20, but I've moved it around at times when there's a relevant reason. He's actually a really interesting life story and all of that, but the particular reason that stands out to me is <laughs> compassion. In a word... By the end of the interview, that's what's summed up, and that's what I think is so is so lacking. I, I'm interested to hear somebody such a different generation to me talking about the issues that are important to me. He's done really well for himself. He wouldn't say so, but he's done really well for himself and good for him. But he's just chosen to just not be an asshole about it. Just because I've done well, I really just don't need to step on other people. You know what? Some other people just couldn't get their stuff together. It's it literally is compassion and decency, and I think frequently people who've done well for themselves especially if they had a modest start often can be quite unfair about other people can be quite nasty and kind of go well I pulled myself up by the bootstraps so I think it's really lovely to hear of somebody who's spent his life working hard and still doesn't feel the need to criticize and bitch and moan and would rather kind of help people and, and help bring people on rather than kind of go well that's disgraceful because I did better and I think it's just really lovely so that kind of warmed the cockles of my cold black heart on a rainy day but also um, I knew you'd be talking about Jack Charlton and uh, because this week we got uh, all of our ministers and they're all bacon faced cabbage looking Fina Fallers I, I was, but I found it really interesting so some we, things was, haven't changed Kieran. yeah so Kieran would know all about the last round of them we had well not the last round the round before last so I thought it was the time to roll out this interview. It's a lovely interview. I give you my good friend, Kira McGowan. Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. I'm here in my home city of Dublin with a very interesting guest for you all today. He's a very humble and soft-spoken man who doesn't particularly like receiving a lot of praise, although he is deserving of a lot and has received a lot. I'm welcoming to the podcast Kira McGowan. Welcome, Kira. Thanks, Sean. Kieran is one of the architects of Ireland's transition from a sleepy European agricultural backwater to the sparkly high-tech, albeit still with its problems, a country that most people know of today. Uh, he has been for many years involved in what's called the IDA, which is the Industrial Development Authority of Ireland, which was the core body responsible for trying to bring investment and jobs to the country and he's joining me to reminisce and chat about his life and what he's learned and uh, we're hopefully going to have a good bit of banter so welcome. Thanks very much Johnny. So you were born in Dublin and you've lived here all your life. Have. And what was it like growing up for you? Is it, t- tell me a little bit about it. Well, it was, uh, it was interesting in this way that uh, I was the eldest of four. We had a shop mm-hmm. in Ratton Mines. My right. dad was a grocer. He was doing well until he got bad news that he had TB. At that time, TB was rampant, yeah. a bit like cancer today. 
And so he had to go into hospital in the pigeon house when I was nine, the eldest of four, and I was nine years old. And so my mother had a big challenge on her hands, rearing the family and also looking after the shop and looking after my father. And so this was the time before supermarkets? And long before supermarkets. What was the shop like? Did you have brown paper bags? It was like the Walton's shop. Walton's shop, brown paper bags, you know, machines for cutting the meat, coal in one corner, <laughs> but selling rubber boots and things, the whole yeah. works. The supermarket started to come along, which made life even more challenging for us. But how we survived for a number of years against the supermarkets was we provided a service of delivery. Mm. Like a number of our customers who were living beside the shop in Rathmines started to move out, we thought, to the suburbs in, yeah. in Milltown. <laughs> about a mile away. <laughs> exactly. So this bit, what year are we talking here? We're right? talking here now about early 50s, 53, early 50s. 54. Okay. My father would be going from house to house in Milltown I was 13 or 14, and that's where I learned to drive, actually driving the car when I had to have a cushion. I wasn't supposed to be driving at 13 or 14, but driving around to, be, to give a service to the customers and also to provide them with tick, you know, in the books. Credit. So, credit. And so those two advantages, if you like, over the supermarkets helped us to compete with them for a little while anyway. The shop raised us, basically, you know. And, uh, but it taught me also customer service. The people that we were serving, I would know them today, to this day. Really? Yeah, I would because we got to know their families. So we wouldn't be just delivering their messages. We would be actually going in, having a cup of tea, saying, how's it going? So how's it all real that customer service. Real like cust- marketing customer totally service. real customer service. And my yeah. father, when things were hard up in the customers, he yeah. would actually be giving them even more on the books, you know. Then, of course, some of them people didn't ever pay, and that was not, not easy. And how was your father? Did he? he was told, again, when I was nine, so that would be 1951, 52, that he'd have a year to live. And he lived for 30 years. Oh, which is I thought mag- you were going to say no, no, it was magic. I didn't know the answer. It was magic, really. So it must have been a wonderful day uh, when he came home. Yeah, fantastic. Then you were, you were in school in Sing Street, yeah? Yeah. Tell me what that was like back in the day. So there was a Christian Brothers School. Oh, it was Christian Brothers School. And it was a brother, O'Keefe was our brother, right. the old oldish man, used snuff yeah. all down his satan. And uh, he took it on himself to teach us about sex, which was just ah. magic. Like we were well, the priests knew an awful lot more about sex back then than we thought they did. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did knew an awful lot more sex than we did because we knew nothing about it. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the first year, he was able to know enough about, it was about 30 or 35 in the class to promote, if you like, four of us from D to A, which was right. a big deal. Yeah. We had other... We you were one of them. I was one of them. One, then we had better teachers as we went along. What are your memories of living in Dublin, like when you're in your late teens? And kind of well, first of all, my memories in relation to the school was we cycled to school, cycled home for our lunch, cycled back in again and cycled home again. So there was a lot of crack, really, of messing around with the bikes. Yeah. And Did you play uh, sport? Played Gaelic for the school. Oh, in the school, also there was a, there were forbidden games. One of which was soccer. soccer. Of course, yeah. And so for uh, those overseas I'm listeners, we're talking here about uh, Gaelic football, which is the national sport of Ireland, which has a sister sport called hurling. And in Ireland, they're still the most popular sports by a long stretch in terms of people watching them and playing participation. Although soccer, of course, as in most countries, is played by huge numbers of people. However, soccer uh, was seen by the Gaelic. Athletic Association, who runs the GA as a British sport, 
and it was banned, and uh, you know you had to make a call between Gaelic or, or soccer, and you were it was it you were you were um, kind of shunned a bit as a Brit lover. You were banned, as you say, by the yeah. brothers uh, from playing soccer. But it was in, there was an Easter league, so during the Easter holidays there was an there was a league of soccer teams, yeah. and we were Kevin's. We played in Dalymont Park, Richmond Park, and really, really, we thought this was the equivalent of Wembley, you know. Uh, so that was, they were terrific days as well so what was the, 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 what was it like that time then we started to go to the dances in the, the Olympic my, my breed of my wife like I met her first of all in a, in my first job Irish pension trust when I was 17 I didn't start going out with her for about a year after that I really started going out with her because we used to go to the Olympic ballroom we used to go to the four provinces in Harker Street the crystal ballroom a lot of dancing you met Breda when you were 17 so you've been with Breda for so I'm 74 73 wow. now and you have four children Yes, right. and eight grandchildren. Emer, Karen, Fiona, and Neil. Very well done. Did a bit of research. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, you did. <laughs> so you whisked her off her feet and, and you danced around. So danced, danced, we danced did around. Did you know them. when you met her that she was going to. I, I thought she looked fantastic. Marrying her, first of all, my father was very anti the whole thing because I was the eldest, from his point of view, ridiculously young, right. immature. And tried to talk me out of it. What age? Talk- what age when we got married? Twenty-two. When he got to know Brida, then he began to be a huge fan. Softened him up. She totally did. <laughs> she totally did. But it was. Uh, I suppose we were. We were. We were young. Like I mean, if my if my children started going out when they were seventeen and got married when they were twenty-two, I'd be saying I would. I would. I, to- I would. <laughs> We do. We <laughs> exactly. And I know a lot of people who were married, who who were married at like nineteen and twenty, and yeah. their kids are getting married at nineteen or twenty. Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so paint the picture now. So you're whisking her off to all these uh, yeah dance halls. Dance halls. What was it like in Dublin? In this, so this is the sixties now. We're in these so yeah. Beatlemania. Yeah, absolutely. Show bands. Show bands. Right, right. Like for example, Dickie Rock. Joe Dolan, all yeah. these guys, they were the hot, the hot places to go. What was it like for a woman living? Were, were men nicer back then? Were they politer? Well, I'd say they were for sure. I yeah. mean, I'd say that uh, not just Breed and myself, but all of our friends treated women with a, with a lot of respect. Mm. We, we were a group. Breed had a flat. We would go down there with six or eight of us mm. after the dance and uh, have a cup of coffee, have a chat and all that. Yeah. No messing around, really, by the yeah. way. We had a lot in common because we were, we were equal. Uh, but I mean, I don't, I we don't were equal women. The marriage bar was in place then. They weren't allowed to work. That's true. That was, was that was, that's true. Equality back then. For example, when I got married, my salary, which was in the eighty eight at the time, went up from seven hundred and forty pounds a year to seven hundred and ninety pounds a year just for getting married. Yeah. So and then uh, Breda had to stop working. They were the rules of things. But I'm just talking about uh, in human relationships. Uh, I can't remember any. Scandals, if you know what I mean, of yeah. anybody. So yeah. you then left uh, Sing Street and you went to college. What did you do in college? I didn't go to college. Oh, you didn't go to college? Because Great, neither did it, I. That's a big thing that I get on this. People didn't go to college. No, right? really? Yeah. I didn't go I to college because after all, like I was 17, I was the oldest in the family. We hadn't got a lot of money. It yeah. would, was, that would have been another question for them to put me through college because I didn't have the money. And it was an accepted thing. It wasn't I was saying, oh, why didn't you send me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I went and I, I got my first job, a firm called Irish Pensions Trust. But at that same time, I applied to become part of the government as a thing called the executive officer which was a, an exam you did at that time if you wanted to get into the civil service and um, I was in Irish Pensions Trust for about I think it was around about two months and I got 
the notification that I had been successful in getting the job when I was going to, to apply to the Department of Industry and Commerce. And I said, I'm going to have to leave. Well, and we talk about civil service. And yeah. Ireland was had to almost build a country from scratch in 1996. Yeah. When we uh, sort of formed the country, we broke away from Britain after many years under their yoke. And we set up the Republic of Ireland, the north of Ireland, for those overseas, is still part of Great Britain. But we had to put in place infrastructure and roads and yeah, yeah. departments that looked after education and health and you know we had to build a country yeah. and that wasn't that long no. ago when you came along and no. the civil service was seen as it is today as sort of flabby and bureaucratic and red tape and nothing gets done and tell me a little bit just about the whole way you view the civil service at the time or now now over, over your life well uh, at the time it was seen to be a good place to go a lot of the best civil services, you know, the T.K. Whittigers and these other secretaries of departments came up through the system because at the time it was a good job to get when you were young. Nowadays, it's different because young people coming out of college have such a choice and they would only, they really would only go into the civil service if, if, as a last resort. That's a shame, really. I, mean, I think as well that, that we have, this applies to MPs and, and, and parliament, people in our, in our parliament, I often talk about Singapore when I went there. I was amazed they, they made politicians the highest paid people in the land. And everyone goes, of course they did, you know, this is sort of a, a acerbic reaction. But they did it for a reason. The reason was they wanted to get the brightest people yeah. in the country wanting to be going into politics to run yeah. the country. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. So it was a Lee Kuan Yew thing, starting from scratch. Yeah. You can, you know, you can etch a sketch a new country. What's the birthright of the last born? What's the what things would we change here now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we could start again, we probably wouldn't have as many. TVs no, definitely not. Because uh, there's too many cooks. Clearly. But there's another huge weakness in our system, which is that there are some really, really bright people, despite everything, coming up through the civil service, who went, went to the very top, and they're forced after seven years to leave. They're like in their middle forties, and they get a pension for the rest of their lives. Is that to stop corruption, or what's the it's reason? To, it's to provide for outlets for young people coming up behind them. But to that extent, it's, it's I suppose it's a good thing, but it's just an absolutely crazy thing that the system, is, you start paying people a full pension, to find a benefit pension, from their middle 40s to the rest of their lives. They, they could do so much by staying on in the public sector. What about the frustration of red tape, you can't do that, work at your own pace? Is that still here? Well, one of the... One of the fantastic things about the IDA is that we didn't ha- you didn't have that at all. And the relationship we had with government was that we'd, we would get money from the, the government and we would deliver jobs, show the government that it was good value for money for them. And, and the more we did that, the more independence we had because they said, well, they know what they're doing there in the IDA and let them matter. Tell me how the idea got set up and what the idea was. So, well, well, the idea got got set up, I think it got started up in the first place in 1949, just as a way of encouraging people to set up business here. And then in 1969, 1970, they decided to split the idea off to become its own separate body. Those of us who were working there at the time were given the option of either going back to the civil service or leaving the civil service and going into the new idea Ireland just for again those people that were listening from overseas was a agriculturally based poor country we had a massive famine in the middle 1800s 
had huge emigration as part and parcel of this country ever since the dawn of time, practically. But there was a sense that we, we, I think, initially wanted to try and be competitive with heavy industry. Well, yeah, yeah. See, um, the, the, the originally, like in the, there was a radical plan produced by Dr. Ken Whitaker called the Program for Economic Expansion, which changed the policy of industry. Which the original policy was called the Controlled Manufacturers Act. So, if someone wanted to set up in Ireland, they had to go and apply for a license. The country was really in a hugely bad way and he produced this plan to say like well like forget that and let's open the doors and let's incur- let's welcome in people who want to set up here and let's ha- let's give them some incentives to set up here and that was in 1958 i think it was and that was the beginning of the policy which in one way or another exists to this day that we actually build on that to be an open door place where we want to encourage overseas companies to come and set up in ireland and to provide jobs and to help them out yeah so the changeover was um, fantastic thing to do. They push a lot into education as well. They, they believe that if we strong, were emigrating, let's be smart. And strong emphasis on education. Mm. Yeah. It still in, stands. In the hope, it does. It does. Yeah. And in the early days, um, the first pharmaceutical company that came here was about, it was Pfizer in around about the early 60s. It took off from there really, you know. They're still here, aren't they? They're still here. Where was your head at then in terms of, you were just saying that you had the choice to make of, of probably a braver, but maybe a little bit riskier move into the, the new IDA or say as a civil servant Did you were you starting to feel a kind of a uh, calling yeah oh, well, I, I was, the work I was doing was in the IDA but it was, it was part of the civil service and uh, it was all out for it as well so I thought it was a good decision to go with the new IDA it was an exciting place to be and you just imagine yourself like you were talking so you're talking to big businessmen who were talking about coming here you know your, your mindset was to be encouraging to them going back to the customers everything I was talking about in the shop and that you were you were given tools which is grants in other words you're writing up applications for them to get money from us it was terrific work really you know and, and you felt good about it and then in the early days too we we built a number of industrial estates and one in Waterford one in Galway so we'd actually be able to say to say an incoming investor and we have we have factories there waiting for you to have a look at it and yeah, see if they suited you. So, so you, you, you built actual factories in advance in advance yeah. that were all yeah, ready to... That were, that how there. did you know what kind of factory to build? We, we didn't. <laughs> right. We didn't. So just a big warehouse kind of thing. Yeah, we built, built an estate, first of all, and right. they, were, they were so there would be some yeah, factories, let's say, of 10,000 yeah, square feet and some of 20,000 square feet, yeah. and then if it didn't entirely suit them, they could expand. We had always room for expansion and so on. I can imagine the discussions about freeing that money up. So yeah. What do you do? What if no one comes? Yeah. It's like, it's like build it and they will come. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, it's, it's, like, it's like we had to say to the government, you trust us, you know, I mean, and, and uh, from the word go, like that has been, that's a challenge and it has worked really, really well. There was never any... There's, a, there's also an element, of, I suppose, of the, it is a major public works exercise, so you are putting people to work. Yes, on building true. That's fire, true as well. So that also that, helps. That, that's, yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the, we move on now, I guess, is the next stage the, the big Intel win? No, well, I was just going to mention about the startup of the IFSC because it, in, in, right. yeah, it was a few years before was Intel. It really? Yeah, oh, okay. it, was, it was 1987 right. and Intel was 1989. Okay. So no way. 1987, then there was a new government appointed. It was an election, new government, new, new Taoiseach, Charlie High. Mm-hmm. High emigration, high unemployment. They looked around to see what could they do about it. 
We got this guy, uh, Charles Hockey, who mm. took over uh, Ireland. <laughs> he became our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister. Very polarising person. In, to my mind, and I'm a generation or two behind Kira, and I, I have uh, I found him an odious and uh, corrupt man. He was one of those sort of guys who used to stand and sit on the television telling everyone to tighten their belts, and it all came out that he was spending like a, like a lord. Uh, but he wasn't. He was the guy at the at the, t- at the start of this uh, attempt to bring Ireland kicking and screaming into a new era, which I guess eventually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one of the um, you will come to maybe Bertie Hearn, who was one of his successors, and there was a great quote about the subsequent boom in Ireland, which was Bertie yeah, Hearn taking credit for. It was like a cock taking credit for the dawn, which I quite liked. Very good. Very good. <laughs> what very was good. your review of Hoggy? You don't have to say anything. That you so I could tell you stories because I had a fair bit of dealings with them. And certainly the IFSC... How did he treat you? I'll tell you a little story. He phoned me up in 1989 and he asked me to go over and see him. I was at the second level in the IDA. And he said, your minister, who at the time was Des O'Malley, and the minister for finance, who at the time was Albert Reynolds, are at loggerheads with each other. And I've been acting as an honest broker between them. <laughs> he said, and I, we had a meeting this morning and all we could agree was that we would get someone independent to meet the two of them and what, what the issue was about a German company Willie Korf buying Irish Steel Irish Steel was a basket case he said so all we could agree on was we get someone and the someone as you to see to me uh, and we want you to go and meet Albert Reynolds and meet Desmond Malley these are all Irish Irish ministers yeah. and come back here and tell me two things one is what do you think of Korf and what do you think of the deal and I did a lot of research as you might imagine because he was the Taoiseach and I came back after about a fortnight to see him and he said, well, yes or no, to see. And I said, well, it's a little bit more complicated than yes or no, Taoiseach. And I told him the pluses and minuses. He, he, he sat me down and he said, and he questioned me and the questions were on the button. Was he respectful to you? Totally. And so much so after that, like I had a good enough relationship with him. You know? But Tell me about some of his... So, so, so... <laughs> the bad side. Bad side. He He's dead now, so... Dead sure. now. There's a statute of limitations in this. Yeah. Another, on another occasion, he, he called me over and he said, I've met a group of people this morning, he said, who are among the brightest people I've ever met in my life. They want to invest in Ireland and I'd like you to look, to look after them personally, to see. <laughs> and I said, so what sector are they talking about? And he said, I don't know, food maybe, to see. So they were Arabs. Met them and had a lot of toing and froing with them. But they really had never any interest because they were already after parting with a lot of money to Yemen. <laughs> That's what he was. He was a mix of... Uh, but he did change. Like, up until then, every Taoiseach was straight as a die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's... He got found out, I think it's fair to say. And yeah. he did have to face the music before he died. I think he died caught. Yeah. He died right. caught. Well, I think most people who would be around would say that he, there was some mixture of both of those things in it. Yeah. Certainly, the IFSC probably wouldn't have happened only for him because he was so driven and so so powerful, really. Yeah. Well, and they get a huge amount of him, him wanting it to succeed would be to deliver on his own ego, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. But also by overriding, you know, I mean, if the, if the fellow from the Depart- of the Revenue, for example, the Department of Finance, well, it's in Taoiseach, so on, so on, so he'd actually drive through them. So the IFSC is a glittering... Yeah, so it employs, employs about 40,000 people now, you know. So. It's been a very successful undertaking over the last 40 years where we've moved from trying and failing to compete with heavy industries 
Uh, we did have some success. Henry Ford, for example, built his first factory uh, in Europe in Cork. But we were never really able to compete, as, as Kieran said, with steel or uh, heavy-duty shipbuilding or stuff like that that was going on, uh, mainly in Britain. We were um, a, com a country that was agricultural. So today we have a very different uh, setup. Talk to us about where the last 30 years of the IDA brought the country or helped to bring the country. One of the uh, one of the companies that came here, as you as you mentioned, was Intel, and they uh, they put together a team that was going to visit seven countries, um, including Ireland. In the early stages of their assessment here, they were very taken with talent. They were worried about where would they be able to get people who had experience of semiconductor manufacturing, because we we had no other high volume semiconductor operation in Ireland. They were mm. going to be the first, and they didn't. They wondered how could they manage that. We hired a consultant to go out to California to actually go around. As a, there's a, there was a network of Irish kids who had gone to work in California. We plugged into that network and went to them and said, if there was a job available for you in Ireland, would you come back? And we got, So we got 64 or 65 names of people and addresses and phone numbers to say, yeah, if Intel come, we definitely will go back. So that was very helpful. We were giving Intel a big grant. In fact, the Intel grant was $87 million over five years and to put it in context the total budget of the IDA at the time was actually 75 million right. so um, big punt big punt and uh, the government said well look at this is a big punt and it's a big firm we know that and we know they're going to provide 1300 jobs I think about at the beginning uh, but you're going to have to get strong commitment from Intel that they're going to be here for at least five years right. Intel said to us we don't know we can we can count for the first 18 months but after that it depends as much on you, Ireland, as it does on us. So if you can continue to have a competitive environment for us to be here, we're all on the same side. Most companies Pro would say that. They would They would say it, and in fact they meant it, because mm. they're, it's a very fast-moving sector, as you know. Yeah. Anyway, it's got set up, and uh, it's uh, it's been a huge success. Like, mm. I mean, they're still here. They still, came, still they, you brought that over the line in what year? September 1989. 1989. So this for you was a big... Well, it was transformative. I mean, it was, it was like going from Doncaster Rovers to Manchester United, really, yeah. in terms of how we presented to other firms around the world. And they told us as well that if we come to Ireland and we, we, we continue here, there will be constructors, construction companies and other contractors suppliers on the site, suppliers, yeah. that will never leave the site. And that has proven, like that is proven to, from 1989 to 2017 to be the yeah. case. Which Intel is remarkable. Inside. Intel inside. <laughs> so they employ about four and a half or five thousand people now. So the basic pitch, and let's talk in a minute, in a second about some of the you didn't you you, you didn't win everything. No, right? no, and we put a lot of effort into things that we didn't win. Like for example, around the same time, it was obviously a huge growth in the sector, and uh, Siemens were looking at building a new wafer fabrication operation as well. We said we should go to Intel and ask them for their permission because at this stage Intel was by far our biggest client, still is to this day, and said, look, would you be okay with us going after Siemens? And they said, we would provide it, you put them in Cork rather than Dublin because they, we don't want them to be poaching our workers. Fair, fair point. Yeah. Siemens also had a team that we were interacting with and they were happy about going to Cork. There was no issue about that. In fact, there was no issue about anything, really, we thought, because we, were, we had now established ourselves through the Intel decision. We went to our board and to say that we had this proposition from Siemens, which we've developed over the, uh, the last few months, and we were recommending a package and so on, and our board agreed to it. We thought we were home and dry, and then the next thing we got, 
there was no there was no sound at all from Siemens and when they when we were trying to find out what was going on it went quiet and John Bruton was the Taoiseach at the time we asked John Bruton would he ring Mr. Von Peerer who's the chief executive of, of Siemens who got in subsequently got into a lot of bother but with um, South Africa South Africa was it or China somewhere yeah. he rang Von Peerer and he got back onto me Bruton did and he told me that um, when their team went to their own board the board had turned it down because between times the government of Britain offered to buy all of their army of vehicles all of their every other kind of vehicles for C- from Siemens for the next five years so and the, so, so the thing went to Newcastle instead of to Cork huge disappointment to us well Siemens <laughs> if you're listening you haven't had such a good run over the last <laughs> ten years maybe you should have come to Ireland <laughs> actually they closed the, 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 the Newcastle operation had to close down afterwards mm. which so was lucky in a way for us your key pitch was a low tax economy and a well educated young workforce yeah would that be fair would were you in bed and f- tight with the education changes that needed to take place to meet? Yeah, we were. How, how we did were. you do that? Because of the nature of the organisation and its relationship with government, we had a big say so about how money got spent in the rest of the economy. So if the IDA felt that it was really important to, let's say, to have an institute of technology, which happened in relation to uh, Intel and Blanchardstown, they we really need to set up another college nearby, that would happen. So the reach of the IDA, I say to this day, is very much much beyond the narrow business of the the tax, you know. How did you approach these problems that had so many different legs to them that needed fixing did you chunk them and just do it one by one or did you well i you know did you get stay, stay with intel. not really no not really and I, I didn't get frustrated and, and and if go back to intel we got really close to them you know and um and funny and a nice thing happened rolled forward to last year the head of intel worldwide his name is craig barrett and he was in the situ when when the decision got made to come here and he was still he's still around and he was retired now but i want well, I was. I rang him. I wanted him to come to a meeting and talk about it all. I rang him, and then I said, "I don't know if you remember me, Craig. I'm Kieran McGowan from." And he said, "Remember you?" He said, <laughs> "Everyone in Intel." <laughs> I thought that was very nice. It's really, very good. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, you. I mean, you. You. Uh, I, I said at the top of the podcast, that you have. A, you, you're not comfortable with receiving praise. Why, why is that? Well, I don't feel any need for it. To be honest with you, genuinely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was. We're talking about my own kind of history in here, but like there was a whole big organisation with me as well. Excuse yeah. me, so I wasn't doing shot my own. No, but the lead, you were leading it. I mean, yeah, the I leader, leading, yeah, leading it. Yeah, you were the captain. You were the leader. Yeah. You were the public face. Yeah. But you know it's embarrassing really I mean I've, I've not, it it's embarrassing honestly. right okay. Bertie Hearn called you a practical patriot did, did he yeah he, 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 he said something nice about me when I was retiring alright which was nice Bertie yeah. Hearn was, was another uh, Taoiseach of Ireland Prime Minister who uh, came in after Hahi he was very much a um, student or acolyte of Charlie Hawhey, and uh, he also ran into problems, although he did a lot of good work for sure. Northern Ireland, yeah. fixed that, and he was in charge. When, basically, the next thing I want to talk about is the boom. So Ireland then went from being this really poor, fag-end country in the EEC, taking huge grants from the Europe. Kieran t- has spoken about the IFSC. We set up a financial services sector in the country. It took off. 
and happy days came. Ireland in the late 90s, early 2000s was booming. We went from one of the poorest countries in Europe to one of the wealthiest. So everyone here was buying houses in Poland and Lithuania and Mercedes-Benz and banks were giving 120% loans out to people and we were just, we could do no wrong. Yeah. You retired in 1998 just as this boom hit from the IDA. Yeah. Talk to me about that time. Well, it was a, it was a boom, as you say. You just you described it well. I don't. I mean, there's something I think in our general psyche that we don't seem to be able to do steady state growth. We either do what you have to describe it, or we go bust. Or boom or bust. Boom or bust. I think it's driven by. Um, we're still a relatively young country, you know what I mean? Mm. So we've never, we don't have a capitalism, a capitalist sector, really. Mm. Yeah, we have a small number of very wealthy people. When you compare it to the UK, for example, it's completely different. Like our background is we came, as you said, from an agricultural country. So we are still growing, really, in terms of putting in place, a, I think, a capitalist system. They and the developers and the bankers had drove a lot of the uh, mad stuff people were climbing over each other a lot of people then got hurt when it went bang yeah. it, it has been awful as well you know? so the country went into massive overdrive yeah. could do no wrong and then around about the time of the subprime collapse yeah. uh, and before that here probably we had a housing bubble caused by overeager banking let loans going out to people Somebody said to me once that actually the, the, the growth of the IFSC brought a whole pile of very, very uh, rich, well-salaried people from overseas banks into Dublin, for example, who were able to name their price on accommodation and bought whatever they wanted and probably wanted to stay in the city centre. And almost that 2,000 people or whatever it was fueled the whole, the whole bus. And, and that's true. And that's, that's happening right as, as this moment. Right now. Because yeah. driven by Brexit, where, where a number of these hotshots are coming in, pushing up the price of the top end of the market to yeah. this day. It's, it's extraordinary that we don't seem to be able to manage it. Well, I mean, I left away and mm. I, I left to go to leave Ireland in 1996. And my joke is... As soon as the plane door closed, Ireland started making lots of money out of that. <laughs> it was, it was the catalyst. But I used to come home, you know, obviously for Christmas and stuff like that. And it became to the point where I just didn't like coming home. I didn't like the attitude of people. Yeah. I didn't like the fact that... So during this bust, we still, just to show that, you know, this whole trickle-down economics doesn't work. What happened was inequality went through the roof. We we, we left a lot of people behind, yeah. and we still have the, that as a as a as a an aftermath yeah. to this day. Yeah. Um, did you see the bus coming? You you were in a maybe I don't know whether you want to talk about this. But you you when you left the IDA, you were very in demand to sit on boards yeah. of, of major corporations yeah. because I guess you had contacts there, and they were saying this guy's really good. Bring him in. How did yeah. how did your life change when you retired? Well, it changed a good bit. I retired when I was from the IDA when I was 55. The first company that I, uh, asked me to go to join their board was CRH. That's which is Roadstone Holdings. They're a big uh, construction, construction company. company. I subsequently became chairman of that company. So I was on a different track, I suppose, really. Very successful company. Very successful company, exactly. They employ about 300,000 people. It's yeah. very big. The company said, well, if CRH went and we want them to sell us out... I got on the board of a number of different companies. I had to learn new skills, really, because 
public sector and the, pr- and the private sector, they're really, really very different from each other. Mm. So one of the things that happens and has happened is, you know, you talk, we opened the discussion talking about your job in a grocery shop in Rat Mines. Yeah. And banks used to be not unlike that, yeah. where you knew the local manager, yeah. where you put your money and you trusted them, yeah. and he took a little bit off the top and he helped you. Exactly. And banks have become these horrible yeah. supermarket type yeah. places where they True. don't treat, we talked about real customer service, yeah. your brown paper bags, giving yeah. credit, tick boxing, your father doing this. Yeah. Banks don't do. We're in the, we're in the process as we speak, of a major scandal about to erupt in Irish banking over, uh, again, housing and mortgages. You were caught in the eye of a storm. You were a board director of Irish Life Permanent when 100% loan-to-value mortgages came in. Yeah. Where all, I think Ulster Bank started and all the banks then started giving people too much bloody money. That's exactly correct. And... The chief executive of Irish Life and Permanent at that time was a guy called David Went. He went to the regulator and he said, look, you better stand in, step in here and ban 100% mortgages because if you don't, it's going to be widespread. And So this would be the central bank? It's a it, it branch of the central bank. Branch of the central bank. And David, David was a banker for a long time and he was also, he's also very clear in his views. And he said, if you don't step in and ban these 100% mortgages, you're going to lead to widespread inflation and they, the regulator said well we're a principle based regulator which is just nonsense really it's just, it's just, it's just words so it, so anyway it happened and I was fortunate in a way like I was on the board for 10 years but I retired in 2008 so I, was, I, I missed the worst of it in terms of the banks being called to account which they should have been um, so let's stop, let's stop there. So, yeah, so should have been prosecuted. Nobody's been prosecuted. One of the things I am interested in is, you know, you talk about David Wendt, you talk about your role, you talk about, we talk about the banks as if this, there's some sort of uh, amorphous kind of cloud of people. All of the people who are in the banks are people who get up in the morning, go to work and come home. David Wendt, you said, warned the regulator, if we continue to do this, we were going to drive inflation and yeah. possibly a bubble but he went and did it because uh, from what I've read uh, they're very sensitive to market share and they want to keep their market share up what we're talking about here is a cartel that seems to just do what it likes mm. and waits for a teacher to say don't do that knowing full well that we're being driven down a- you know also so if you take the, the, a bank any bank mm. They have a number of stakeholders, one of whom are actual shareholders in yeah. the bank. They come along, in relation to the current issue of stealing money, you could say, yeah. away from the people who have uh, tracker mortgages. I'd say what, what, what happened, and just, just goes to people's values, there must have been a discussion at the board of some bank to say, look, we, the board, would like you to woo people customers of ours away from their tracker mortgages because otherwise we're going to have less profits so that that discussion in one form or another must have happened at one bank and then nobody asked the question of what about the customers we have who have tracker mortgages who are finding it hard enough to pay even the tracker mortgages but you know i will contend that someone did ask that question because that's a very obvious question you would have think. Well, no, I, I would say the question was asked, and, and, and there was a decision made. Screw them. 
that wouldn't be put on the table screw them no of or, course or any not. Or like in, in any in, <laughs> in, 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 in any, any correspondence mm. I the have profit f- motive is, is was really yeah. the driver of course now when it's seen it seemed to be just appalling well I have a friend who, who was very, fairly high up in the legal department of the central bank yeah. when the first collapse happened and when the first collapse happened just for those listening Ireland went from boom to bust it nearly did a grease the only reason we didn't do a Greece is that we had probably better infrastructure in terms of taxation and stuff like that. People do pay their taxes here, yeah, but yeah. it was the it was the taxpayer yeah. who got left with the bill for all of these guys who were trading fraudulently and, and abusing the system. I had a friend of mine, central bank, and I said to him, "What the hell just happened? Why didn't you say anything?" Yeah, and he said, "Nobody asked me," and I went. That's not good enough. You have to be asked. Yeah. Well, we, we're not a whistleblower nation. We're not someone who encourages whistleblowing. We're not encouraged. And whistleblowers don't get well treated. And right? they don't get well treated at all, as we know from around the world. And th- this is the regulator. Like, this is the guy who's the canary in the mine. He's mm-hmm. got to, and he's got a wife. And his view is, I see the crash coming. Yeah. I think a lot of people saw the crash coming. People yeah. in the building trade saw the crash coming. Yeah. My sister is an architect. But everyone just froze in the headlights, waited mm. for the lorry to hit. Them. And again, to your point, we don't seem to have learned and put in place checks and balances to stop this happening again. We're in the throes of Brexit where we're hoping to the IDA which is still going is hoping I'm sure to get a lot of businesses coming in here, coming in here because we're English speaking and we're close to America and all this kind of stuff. If we do get them they're going to come in. There's not enough houses. They'll have free reign on buying whatever they want. That will drive the property up again. Mm. People will get squeezed out. Mm. Eventually there'll be a bubble and we'll collapse again. Mm. Why do you not think that we've been... Because we're educated. Mm. I think it's kind of... uh, We're a nation of followers. Especially on this point we're talking about. Mm. Rather than outright leaders who are prepared to go against the trend and say, well look at these people are going to drive up the prices. We're going to stay out of it. And then if their shareholders are saying, well, look, and why is the share price? And we say, well, look, that's the way we want to run our business. That's going to take someone with a lot of balls, really, to do that. And a lot of balls and a lot of support from other places, other people and other stakeholders. And that has been the, the, the dominant culture over time with followers. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was I've come home to Ireland um, and I was intrigued about your uh, very clever strategy of getting people back to serve the Intel pitch. I've come home after 21 years and I'm kind of angry. I'm angry because 21 years is a long time in politics long time in life. and a long time in life and a long time in businesses. And if you take, you know, from when you retired in 1998... You go back 21 years to the mid-60s and the leaps and bounds that we made between 1965 and 1998. And I look now at the country that I left in 96, 21 years ago, and the same five things that were problems then are the same five things, only worse now. Our health system is creaking, was creaking back then, is worse hospital bed waits, waits for to see GPs, waits to see doctors. Our education system has been in need of overhaul during that time, I think. It is in need of overhaul, especially at third level. We have a growing and worsening inequality, despite what anyone tells us about our progressive tax system. We have got lots and lots and lots of people who can't make ends meet. Mm -hmm. We have a homeless problem that is laughable. We have something like 9,000 
people in this country in temporary accommodation, two and a half thousand in kids. We only have 200 people on the streets of Dublin sleeping rough. I say that only because we can't even fix that. And we have a body politic or a, a, a parliament, a doll, that is full of people who procrastinate and don't do. And we have no doers. We are missing creativity. We are missing bravery. And we are missing action. And these were the things that we were missing in 1996 when I left. One of the reasons I left. You're a glass half full guy. Tell me how we can get out of this. How do you think we can get out of this? Well, there are, there, if, if you take the homelessness, for example, there are one or two people breaking the mould. Mm-hmm. Peter McVeary. Yeah. Brother Kevin. Mm-hmm. Which I would say Tony Gregory was doing Tony in 1996 Greg- when I was leaving. Yeah, yeah. There were people there then who were yeah. breaking the mould. Yeah, yeah. I guess what we need are people, more breakers of moulds, really. I think another thing is compassion. We've lost something. See, we, 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 I, see, I think we're compassionate as a nation on an individual basis. Right. I even feel that about myself, for example. We have a number of people who, you know, who have a, having a hard time. I feel very close to them. I really feel very close to them. And I think that would be the case with a lot of people. Much more than we're able to be compassionate to a plan. I was saying to the fellows that do, do the Vincent de Paul out their own way, like, would it be possible, I said to them a few years ago, to break off, say, a series of half a dozen and a half a dozen and a half a dozen and say, Sean, we would really like you to look after these, these six people. Whatever, whatever. Because I think instinctively in our in our nature I mm. think we are we're not, it's not as if we're absolutely completely driven by driven mad by wealth and all that I think we, I think that we are a compassionate mm. people we've never been able to harness a response to it of course that didn't happen either we're in relation to guys and say, well we couldn't do that because it would break down and all the rest of it and I think that's a bit of a pity really you know from when we were children we have this built in despite the fact that we're Catholic and Christian yeah, yeah. and so much of, of religion is about looking after the person in trouble yeah we have this built-in resistance to giving alms and excuses those women are only out there with their single mothers they're only having babies so they can get the free money now the free money is a hundred and something a week there's a lot better ways of making a hundred bucks than getting pregnant and having a baby your man's only going to spend his money on drugs yeah yeah so what? It doesn't matter, exactly. It doesn't matter. Exactly. And I but don't know how we break this. We have it in us. Yeah. And I think in this respect, yourself and myself will come from the same. You knew before we had this interview where my background was, decidedly modest. I think that's my dominant culture. I really get good satisfaction out of it. And as time has gone on, by the way, in relation to my own kind of career, I now have about four or five involvements, and only one of them is commercial involvement, all the rest of them are pro bono in one way or another. So, And that's the way it should be, I think, really. Yeah. And I, I get much more kick out of it than I did out of the businessy things. You know? yeah. I look at, say, my career in advertising, and you know, it's very easy to say this from a 30-year career where I've made my money. Yeah. But I find it not unlike the cigarette since it's a business that is morally and ethically questionable. It is a business that drives greed. It is a business that pimps capitalism. It is a business that makes people buy and want things they don't necessarily need, which causes them to get into a hole, which we seem to just go, sorry, he didn't have to buy, he didn't have to believe our ads. There's something to me about trying to get... Like, I really like the way that you chunk the Vincent de Paul thing. To me, that chunking idea is an example of 
creativity, yeah. doing something differently to solve yeah. a problem, looking yeah. at problems in new ways. Yeah. It's brave. Might yeah. not work. Yeah. But let's have a crack at it. Yeah. It is action. Yeah. And it is actionable. Yeah. You're working at the moment with business in the community. Yeah. Tell me about that. So business in the community have a number of member companies who give them money to do things. And for example, they one of which is it's called the Schools Business Partnership Program, where where they would go to, let's say, Diageo. They'd ask Diageo to mentor kids from James Street School, kids who have no parents anymore, typically break out of school at the end, at their interstage. They would get people in Guinness to mentor the kids. The track record is that the probability of going on to the Leaving Cert stage is way, way higher than it would have been without this program. And then the mentors very often become friends of the kids for life. We have that going with 249 schools around the country. Right. Number one. Number two, we have another program called Ready for Work, where we get people who have been in a bad place, druggies, have been in prison mostly, and who are getting their act together, and they're, they're made ready for work, certified in a way... We would go to a member company, the best of whom is Marks and Spencer, and say, listen, we think that Shawnee now is okay. Give him a job. Give him a job. They would take him on. They'd give him a job for a fortnight. They would give him a little certificate saying, Shawnee, do 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 Or alternatively, if you... Take him on. Take him on. Three months. They have little videos, and it's just really emotional how these kids in, you know, they're now working in the luggage department, or they're now actually being allowed to serve customers, and they never thought they would be. It's fucking so who's, who's it's fantastic. is it a new thing? It's there since the year two thousand. Okay, and I've been chairman of it since thirteen years. Well, I'd like to help with that. Would you? Can. Yeah, in any way. They also give advice to companies about their sustainability of their businesses, climate action, and all that kind of stuff. It's actually, I say, very dead on for you and what you're trying to think about. One of the things you just touched on there, I want to talk to you about. Why have we not? become one of the global leaders in sustainable energy. Wind, yeah, wave. Yeah. We're a rock in the middle of the roughest ocean in the world. Yeah. Why can't we harness? Why have we not bothered? Yeah. Denmark have. We should have. Like the, re- the reality is we should have. But we're a ridiculous country in the sense that if you want to put up a farm of um, the high wind farm, someone will object to it. Crap, really. Okay, look, that was really intriguing and interesting, and you've calmed me down a little bit, I think, <laughs> my, my return to my own country. So, look, before we wrap this up, and thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you. T- what thank are, you what very are much. Your, what are your two or three things you want to leave, wisdom-wise? And what would you say to a young person in Dublin today or Ireland today? So strong emphasis on education. Keep learning. Keep learning. Another thing that I think really people need to trust people in businesses and in life. Know the person that we're talk- that you might be talking to or working with such that they're, they're a real friend or a business friend, mm. but there's somebody that you could actually criticize them, but they would take it in a way that it would be their brother and your brother. Meaningful. Trust, I think, is a huge thing, really. And then the whole business about... I'm thinking of a number of the people that we that I know at the other end of life, and I do put my arms around them, give them a hug, really, you know. Yeah. So compassion. 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 Yeah. yeah, the lady who delivers our newspaper, for example, is a really good friend of Breeders and myself. She gets a terrible raw deal from her in every way. We we love her, really. Yeah. And we she says this, we're in due of her parents, really. Wow. I'd like to be able to do that for more people. Brilliant. Yeah. Kieran McGowan, thank you very much for taking time to uh, chat on a pint with Shawnee B. Some really interesting leave behinds there. And also, I think you're the first person who's mentioned trust out of all my interviews. And I think it's something that's been lacking in my 
career and is lacking in society in general. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sean.